my name is Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And it's finally time to talk about the little tramp himself, Billy West. <laughs> Billy West was the name, of course, of Charlie Chaplin's most prolific impersonator in the 1910s. There was a whole Bruceploitation-like industry of Charlie Chaplin impersonators who made movies in the 1910s. You know, they had the derby hat, the little mustache, they had the walking shtick, the cane twirling shtick and uh, he was the best of them anyway we're not actually going to talk about billy west no we're talking about wheeler dryden <laughs> oh wheeler dryden charlie's half brother uh no we're going to talk about the actual little tramp himself the og mr charlie chaplin now for people who have listened to this podcast before you know that charlie chaplin is a favorite of mr will sloan's Definitely an important figure in my cinephilia. Definitely one of those people who, when I saw him as a kid, opened my eyes to new possibilities in cinema. Somebody who I grew up with. Somebody who's in my DNA. What's your relationship with Charlie Chaplin? Didn't watch him when I was a kid. Didn't really grow up with him. He is definitely not in my DNA beyond knowing him as a pop culture figure and knowing how important his films are. And seeing a few of them over the years. Over the years. I think maybe the first Charlie Chaplin film I saw in college mm. because before that if my parents aren't showing them to me and I'm not stumbling upon them at on Sunday I mean some of them were in public domain weren't they so they'd be in like the bootleg uh, public domain bins and stuff like that oh absolutely I was interested in doing this episode because I know all the Chaplin movies very well. I certainly know all the features very, very well to the point where, like, I'm almost a little tired of them. Like, th you actually said, ah, do we have to do Charlie Chaplin? Like, I know it so well. Well, yeah, it was kind of at the point where, like, look, City Lights, it's a perfect film. Do I need to see it again? Do I need to see him on the statue at the beginning? Like, I know every beat of it. Like, I kind of thought, can I have 10 years off of this subject? But then the, the idea of experiencing them through you a relative novice in this subject i was interested in that and i threw the gauntlet down and said i'm gonna watch them all will i'm gonna <laughs> watch all the ones on letterbox that are technically listed as feature films that charlie chaplin himself directed i'm not doing none of those chaplin reviews or anything like that You're not doing just... tilly's punctured romance no but we could talk about it a little bit even though that's technically not a charlie chaplin film that's a starring vehicle for canada's own marie dressler that's right. We, who used to have a museum. <laughs> now it's the Museum of Canadian Women in Film. Which... Probably because people are like, who's coming for the Marie Dressler Museum? I kept meaning to go. Anyway, I'm going to check it out at some point. It's at Marie Dressler's actual house uh, somewhere in Ontario. Uh, another reason I want to talk about Charlie Chaplin is, frankly, most people know Charlie Chaplin, but I genuinely don't know how many people actually sit down and watch his movies. And I want to encourage people to explore him because... I think Chaplin is one of the most accessible of all great filmmakers. Yes, silent films require a different kind of concentration than many of us are used to today, but I think at their best, they also have a unique potential to cross barriers. The themes that Chaplin gravitated towards, like poverty and hunger and injustice and love and human dignity, these are very universal themes, some of the most universal themes of them all. Also, marrying young, right, Will? Well, yes. Let's uh, get this out of the way now. Uh, Chaplin was a flawed man yeah. in his private life. I'm not going to separate the artist from the art on this. I do think his attitude towards women is something that 
influences the films it's certainly in the films and maybe we'll get to that as we as we discuss the films and when you watch a film like the kid one of the literal children in it you go mm, yep that's soon to be one of chaplin's brides a little creepy yeah a little, a, creepy. Little, a little bit creepy but charlie chaplin's his films are very accessible you have a criterion membership they're on there they're all there pretty yeah much. and by the way everything i've said just makes it sound like the films are a chore you know uh, because they're about hunger and poverty but he really is very funny and also i think with the arguable exception of buster keaton i can't think of any performer who was more perfectly calibrated for the cinema screen, for the camera, somebody whose every gesture counted. I think if you're unfamiliar with Chaplin's work, you may think, oh, Charlie Chaplin, it'll be maudlin. It won't have that kind of physicality that I love in someone like Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd. I don't know why you would have seen all of their films, but none of Chaplin. <laughs> but this is just, you know, I'm spitballing here. The thing about Chaplin is he was the all-rounder. He cut his teeth doing banana slapstick in early on when he was doing a short a week. I mean, I value every stage of Chaplin's career, and I value the evolution. He arrived in Hollywood in 1913, started making movies in 1914. Those first two years of Chaplin making short films, grinding them out, I mean, he made very broad very violent slapstick comedies, and I love those movies. I think they're very funny, some of them. I mean, they're right in your face. They're a catalog of all the tricks that he learned working in vaudeville, brought to the screen in this perfect rat-a-tat way. And good thing he knocked aside Mabel Norman, right? <laughs> that uh, battle axe that was keeping him back. <laughs> I mean, he and other comedians in those early films, including Mabel Norman, as a matter of fact. Who we did an episode on, check it out. Uh, very well-trained physical performers and in those early shorts i mean i think those short films used to be dismissed a lot by the chaplin scholars it's like oh these were the training films like or the whatever. keystone like silly films but i mean all of them are just dense with slapstick they're such good physical performers they're doing these incredible things with their bodies these incredible stunts these incredible balletic feats of agility and making them look incredibly easy also in those early movies anytime anyone's bent over and their their ass is sticking out they're gonna get a kick by a chaplin and that's funny. It is. Funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. Like a guy with a bunch of pies that walks into a room close to the little tramp. You think something's going to happen to those pies? Yep, you're right. They're going down. People think those movies from 1914, 1915 are dated or that they're they're creaky or whatever. I'm sorry. They're super fast paced. They're, okay, Tilly's Punctured Romance opens with Marie Dressler. She's like throwing a brick for her dog to fetch. <laughs> the brick, she throws the brick, hits Chaplin in the face. Uh, I'm hilarious. sorry. Hilarious. <laughs> funny. There's Okay, there's another scene until he's punctured romance not to talk about it too much but charlie in that movie and mabel normand are posing they're, they're like con artists and they're posing as wealthy people so they walk into a mansion and they have these servants there and they just start like beating up the servants they just start fucking with their clothes and you know slapping them in the face because like what are you gonna do when you have servants you know fucking beat them up yeah that's what you do i assume that's what all rich people do with their servants because they're evil people and that's how they became rich and that's funny not only is it funny, but it's class conscious. <laughs> it is. When did slapstick become a dirty word? Like, when did people turn against slapstick? And I know it's probably a long kind of path when it comes to movies. The fact that movies were looked down upon when they started as a novelty. 
and slapstick was that universal language. Yeah, I do think it is very class oriented. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's regarded as this low base thing. But I mean, I'm sorry, a, a pie in the face. These are the things that unite us all. You see that. And if you don't laugh, you're dead on the inside. Also, we don't have movies like that anymore because people are not trained the way that people like Chaplin were trained. That backbreaking vaudeville training they had. And it's just the structure that we have of comedies now. I was watching City Lights with Emily last night and she pointed out, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that, you know, comedies used to be structured around an idea and then you would see multiple variations of that idea (laughs) and it would just get funnier and funnier because you're seeing those variations play out. And that's not how we make movies anymore. I'm going to say to the detriment of humanity. Well, all those early Chaplin movies, I think basically up to The Great Dictator, none of them had shooting scripts. They were improvised, over, I mean, sometimes over the course of years on the spot where you'd have the, where you'd have an idea where it's like, okay, I'm a tightrope walker and there are going to be monkeys on me and hilarity will ensue. And then he might have spent a month working with his team to figure out how do we how do we build this gag? What are the variations of this gag? Oh, maybe this gag's a non-starter. What if we tried it this way? What I'm trying to say is that now that everybody's cool with Jackie Chan, Y'all love Jackie Chan, his physical uh, feats on screen. Let's bring Harold Lord back in the frame. Let's, <laughs> let's give him his due. Or Harry Langdon. He does really funny slapstick, too. So I do love those early ones, but then I also love the evolution. I mean, it's interesting in 1915, 1916 to watch him do those early sometimes clumsy experiments with combining comedy and tragedy. There's a movie from 1915 called The Tramp, where it's the first one to have the downbeat ending, where he doesn't get the girl, and he walks off into the distance, and he's sad, and then he starts to get a skip in his step, because tomorrow's another day, and he walks into the sunset. And Shrek peeks around the corner (laughs) as Chaplin walks away. (laughs) Uh, Justin is referring to a wonderful Oscar montage from the year 2005 where Chaplin walks off into the distance and is joined by Shrek. (laughs) You know, the two comedy greats. I mean, I think the most important fact about Chaplin, obviously, is that he grew up in horrible poverty. His father drank himself to death. His mother lost her mind and was put in an asylum. And he spent two years in a Dickensian workhouse until his older brother saved him by getting him a job in vaudeville. I think the moment when Chaplin becomes a genius is when he figures out how to harness those memories, harness that pain, and make poverty the central subject of his work. Basically putting the tramp inside these poverty surroundings and comedy comes out of that. All the best remembered Chaplin bits or movies are him starting in poverty, sometimes moving out of it, sometimes still ending up there. Mm -hmm. For example, City Lights. And that's where the emotion as well as the comedy comes from. For me, the moment when it all clicks is in a movie from 1917 called The Immigrant. In that one, the first half of it is on this immigrant steamship. Second half is in a restaurant where he can't afford his food. And in that one, the awfulness of the ship is funny until it's not anymore. And like the the sadness and the humor are constantly informing each other. But Charlie, you can't make a film making fun of immigrants? That's insane! (laughs) Okay, this is funny. You today, I mean, true commitment to this podcast, you watched the 1992 Richard Attenborough biopic Chaplin starring Robert Downey Jr. And a cavalcade of stars. The sky is dark where they are all in this movie. (laughs) Dan Aykroyd. Kevin Kline as Douglas Fairbanks. uh, Marissa Tomei as... David Duchovny as a cameraman and editor. uh, James Woods as the prosecuting attorney. I mean, my God, so many stars. I mean, I would say you can't fault the cast. I think Downey's 
incredible, but what a bad movie. It is wow. one of those bananas. We're going to tell the whole person's life movie, and we're going to put Robert Downey Jr. in horrifying makeup, <laughs> explaining the film to Anthony Hopkins. But you're referring to my favorite structuring device of the movie, which is, I mean, to cram a man's life into 140 minutes, you've got to take some shortcuts. And this movie's shortcut is to have his brother come in at every time and say the wrong thing. Be like, Charlie, you have to make a sound movie. No, I won't make a sound movie. You can't make a film making fun of Hitler. And he's like, but I have to make a film making fun of Hitler. It's just that at every step of the way. <laughs> Very funny. Why, Charlie, why don't you keep this brother around? He's wrong at every every Even important decision. Charlie Chaplin did say his brother is the only reason that he really had any success artistically and financially because he was his manager. Uh, his brother was the one who negotiated that million dollar contract, the first ever million dollar contract in film. So I don't think we can go through every company that he worked for. He started at Keystone. Keystone, Keystone Cops, classics. Then there's the SNA Film Company. The Mutual Film Company, where he worked 1916, 1917, is where I think the first real classics are. I mean, sorry, no disrespect to the early ones, but this is where you start to get inklings of the mature style. Movies like Easy Street, The Rink, The Cure. There are others I'm forgetting. Uh, 1 AM is an incredible sort of one-man movie. And this is where my journey watching these features that Chaplin directed starts because I watched Shoulder Arms. It was actually the first movie he made for First National, which is a different company that he got to later. And that was a World War One film. It actually came out right after the First World War ended. And Chaplin did not participate in the First World War, even though he would say, I put my draft in. They just didn't call me. I don't know about that. I'm, yeah, I'm all right, Charlie. I'm sure he found a way out of it. And I think that this short, because it is like 40-ish minutes, mm-hmm. is fine. I mean, I think this this short probably would have resonated a lot more strongly just in a society that was right at, you know, war was on the brain. Uh, one thing I do like about it, though, is just the squalor of it. I mean... It's gross. Yeah. It doesn't portray fighting in the trenches as something that, like, the comedy comes from anything other than just it being miserable and wet. And it's all exaggerated, but it's also like, oh boy, I would not want to be in this situation. Yeah, the most memorable scene is Charlie and some of the other soldiers in one of the trenches, and and they're, like, sleeping, but there's, you know, five feet of rainwater that they're in. And it's not funny rainwater. It's Mm. filthy, ugly rainwater. I mean, when I say that Chaplin harnessed that awful feeling of poverty into his art, I think this is an example of that. I mean, he knows what grime and squalor feels like. Well, that's what he moved on to for his next feature, which is his first slam-dunk feature-length classic. That's 1921's The Kid. What'd you think of The Kid? Love The Kid. Probably one of my favorite Chaplins that I watched uh, this week, just because it is so compact, it is so personal for him, and Jackie Coogan, mm, what a co-star that little boy is. Yeah, so... Uncle Fester himself. uh, Yeah, I mean, five years old, six years old, or whatever, I mean, he's the one one person in these movies who I think really just goes toe-to-toe with Chaplin is probably more compelling on screen. Because he's a kid. Yeah, he's delightful. He's, he's And you're also familiar with the Tramp character, but this is one that really goes for the feels as it plays. Because Chaplin finds a little baby that's been abandoned, and he takes it and raises it at his own in squalor. And the main... Uh, you know, it's at the end of the movie. Dramatic conflict is the child is being taken away in the same way that Chaplin himself was taken away. 
away because his mother at the at the beginning of the movie she's a single mother and she leaves the child at the doorstop of a rich family but some thieves take it it ends up in Chaplin's hands and so there's a central conflict in the movie that I actually think is quite powerful of who should the kid actually belong with at the end should it be with the unwed mother who at some point in the next five years becomes a wealthy movie star which happens a lot in these movies yeah. <laughs> people become wealthy I mean it's a Chaplin was very compelled by that like line between be absolute abject poverty and sudden extraordinary wealth and fame but you also get when he talked later in his life the like gnawing fear that at any moment it could be taken away from him and these movies kind of reflect that fear but also an understanding of being in that situation there's also the dynamic of Jackie Coogan and Chaplin just working together to make their life better mm-hmm. and that is so compelling funny but also emotional at the same time the movie also again has that a dirty grimy ghetto feel to it like i love when chaplin is introduced where he's walking down the street and like somebody like dumps garbage out the window onto him uh but he's still carrying himself like he's a gentleman you know like it's very important for the tramp to maintain his dignity he's a temporarily embarrassed gentleman not a tramp what are the main characteristics of the tramp in your mind the ones that bubble up to the surface when you think about it even though he has been a multitude of things over the years what do you think of when you have to kind of just picture it in your head? It's a good question because there has been a real evolution in the character. In those early shorts, he's such an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, a troublemaker. He's constantly going into situations and picking fights and beating people up and uh, kicking people in the ass and that sort of thing. By the last time we see him in The Great Dictator, where he's like sort of the tramp, sort of not... I mean, he's basically become this almost uh, saint-like creature, this... Uh, More befuddled, because he speaks a lot in The Great Dictator as well. Yeah, or he's like, he's like a pixie-ish character. I mean, the things I would associate with him... I mean, basically, he's just sort of like balletic grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think some have talked about his everyman quality, which he has. But then he's also at every single thing he attempts, he's the greatest person to ever do it. Like when he's mixing a drink, he mixes a drink like nobody. When he's roller skating, he roller skates like nobody. But he has to make it look effortless as well, which is the hardest thing to do. (laughs) That it almost seems accidental and they're just capturing it on screen. Even though, let's be honest, maybe there are a thousand takes of him looking like shit. And then you get the best one up on screen. I read an interview with Buster Keaton where he said that the difference between his character and Chaplin's character was that uh, the tramp didn't want to work you know the the, the tramp embraced uh, poverty as and embraced not working as a lifestyle whereas the Buster Keaton character was like very much a can do like wanted to participate in society and I think he's correct I mean Keaton regarded that as making his characters morally better in some way but I mean I like how the tramp genuinely regards work as a horrible inconvenience and something to be avoided. Oftentimes when the tramp is going towards something in this series of films, it's in regards to somebody else, Mm -hmm. usually like a woman character or Jackie Coogan in The Kid with that great scene where he runs across the rooftops to go Mm -hmm. save him. It's funny that whenever he attempts something like, again, mixing a drink or roller skating, he's amazing at it. But whenever he has to do work, whenever he's hired to do something, he's the worst person to ever do it. But he does it very balletically, though, and (laughs) hilarious for the viewers. The kid, even though I say it's one of my favorites, it's also one where Chaplin's like, 
I guess he's in heaven now for the last 10 minutes. That's right. The last five minutes of it are a little bit... Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get to a feature-length running time here. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I even kind of like some of that stuff. It's got some great comic set pieces in it. The stuff with the bully, I think, is really funny. The stuff of them breaking the windows is funny. And yeah, the rooftop chase, I mean, gets me every time. I mean, it's just Jackie Coogan's face. You feel like they're actually um, putting that child in mortal danger. Oh, my God. So, uh, A Woman of Paris. That was his first film for United Artists which is the company that he started with Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith, the company that was artists taking control of their own work, self-financing and self-distributing their own work. And this will never fail! (laughs) Having this company had the clout to make a serious drama in which he did not appear except for a tiny bit part. The film starred Edna Purviance, his co-star on multitudes of movies. They also had a relationship, like basically every uh, woman that Charlie Chaplin got any contact with. And this was his attempt to launch her as a leading lady. It also features Adolphe Manjou, one of the great silent stars of the time. It's the story of uh, a poor French girl who is planning to go to the big city, uh, elope in the big city with her starving artist boyfriend. Due to a tragic misunderstanding, she ends up going alone, and then we cut to a year later when she has become the uh, very well-paid mistress of Adolphe Manjou, who's a real boulevardier, kind of a caddish rich guy in town. But uh uh-oh, her love comes back into the picture and she has to make a decision. Is she going to go with the poor uh, love that she had before she became a mistress? Or is she stay with this cad that gives her everything she would have ever wanted? Of the Chaplin features, this is probably the one that people watch the least. Not least because he's not actually in it. But also because it's a silent drama and... It was a box office failure, but critics at the time and many of Chaplin's fellow filmmakers regarded it as a landmark achievement because it had naturalistic acting, the subtle ways he was able to convey visual information, often about the sort of potentially uh, salacious nature of the material, like the way he conveyed that these characters had a sexual relationship through subtle means, like Adolphe Manjou opens her drawer and like his his cufflinks fall out of it and the, the boyfriend sees it. Stuff like that was regarded as, oh, this is like the, the height of visual storytelling. And you watch it now and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it's alright. Some of those innovations, like the naturalistic acting, it's hard to see how fresh and, and how unusual that would have been at the time but but it it is fine it's it's solid if you're a completionist you gotta watch it because that's one that he directed and it's also the one that was haunting him when he was on william randolph hearst's boat and he witnessed a murder question mark (laughs) see the cat's meow for more so having flopped with that it was time to get back in the bowler hat put the mustache back on and make his most ambitious comedy yet the gold rush hey we skipped the pilgrim which is technically feature length oh did you watch the pilgrim yeah never good it's fine pilgrim's okay but but you could kind of sense in the pilgrim i think that was the last one he's like gotta get through this contract get these out he did that one for first national yeah i will say that the pilgrim i think one of the reasons that it doesn't do as well as the other ones is that you do feel chaplin kind of bristling against genre structure it's kind of like westernish that one Mm. it's like mistaken identity you don't have that free flowing style that is present in all of his classic films i do like chaplin in an urban setting Mm -hmm. more so well although there are a lot of rural settings in his movies. I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, here we go. The Gold Rush, which is 
technically a rural setting. Uh, so the Gold Rush, I mean, this is the one that when I was a kid really made me fall in love with them. Now, did you watch the narrated version? I watched the silent version on a public domain VHS tape. Wow, okay. So for people that don't know, Chaplin went back and in 1942, he released a new version of the Gold Rush, which was shorter didn't have any intertitles, and then he narrated himself. What's important to remember about that version, which unfortunately is like the default version of the movie now, if you look... Really? On the Blu-ray, that's the main one, and then you can get the silent version as an extra. Do not watch the 1942 Mm re-release. What's important to remember about that one is that in 1942, there was very little precedent for doing a re-release of a silent movie. To 1942 audiences, silent movies were outmoded. They were old technology. So Chaplin was like, the way to make this saleable is if I narrate it and I add a bunch of new sound effects and that sort of thing. Obviously, we don't need that anymore. He also cut something like 20 minutes out of it, including the scene at the end when they kiss. And you also pointed out that he cut a lot out of the kid as well. Well, yeah. I mean, that was 68 minutes when it was first released. And the version on the Criterion channel is 52 minutes, I think. And mostly what he cut out was were dramatic scenes of the kids' biological parents, stuff that I think to 1972 audiences would have registered as a little bit hokey or a bit melodramatic. But I mean, I don't know. I like that stuff. I I want the full melodramatic experience. So it's odd that that's not the first one that comes up when you look on the Criterion Channel website. Well, because the Chaplin family who owns the movies, they say, well, his, his last version is his final statement. That's the definitive version, which I think is too bad. So The Gold Rush, 1925, hilarious movie packed with classic bits you got the eating the shoe you got the cabin teetering on the side of the mountain underrated guy in a bear costume (laughs) oh love that yeah 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 and a guy in a chicken costume too oh very funny i was trying to think of like what is the origin of someone looking at someone else and seeing them as something they could eat the chaplain (laughs) created probably not but he mastered it in this movie. Absolutely. A lot of very funny stuff. And also, I think the dramatic stuff, when Chaplin goes to the little gold rush town that's emerged in the Yukon or wherever it's set, he has that flirtation with the dance hall girls who, you know, by the way, that's uh, sex workers, uh, but they can't say that, but that's who, that's what they are. And there's the ladies' man, which is code for pimp, who, who runs the operation. Like, the dynamic that develops between them, I think, is genuinely very moving. I think it's hilarious that, like, the big standout scene from this movie, him doing the little kick dance with the little rolls, is so sad in the film that it's in within the context of him being abandoned over a New Year's dinner that he did. Oh. And he's imagining the people being there, and he's doing this little dance. Any time is removed from that context of why it was so impactful when he did it in that sequence. You know, Benny and June, Johnny Depp's doing it. Isn't it funny? That's not the context it was created in. So he spends the whole whole movie in love with this quote-unquote dance hall girl wink wink and the love story is never actually satisfactorily i think resolved Uh, she mostly feels bad for him more than anything else exactly she feels bad for him and like late in the movie there are a couple of instances where he thinks oh this means she loves me and no not true and then when they are reunited on the boat at the end 
Uh, still not true, but he's become rich at that point. And she's like, oh, well, I yeah, guess, I guess uh, I'll marry you. <laughs> I guess I'll marry you. But he can turn into a uh, kind of vague acceptance. And I think that sort of emotional ambiguity at the end of the movie is very powerful and what, what really separates this one for me and makes it one of the best. And what a visual wonder this one, like the cabin, just the <laughs> fact that it's like a big artificial set that so much stuff can happen to it. Just all the gags of wind blowing through the doors. Hilarious. And I think the the final big set piece with the cabin teetering on the edge of the mountain is like one of the all-time best just beautifully structured great idea so let's move on to arguably the most laughs packed into one feature film that chaplin directed and starred in the circus and yet not considered one of the best ones which is weird isn't it i mean it's a great film it's uh it's very funny it has tons of gags just set piece after set piece and the circus environment of course it's gonna be like so many things chaplin can play with also i think a very satisfying emotional story of chaplin learning that the girl doesn't love him and accepting it yeah at the end being okay with it he goes to the marriage ceremony he throws like confetti and stuff like that and just kind of feels sad at the end and the the circus goes off but it's like time for another day you know time for another adventure but you also get a scene of Chaplin on a high wire and he's like oh gotta stay up here and then the monkeys come and climb all over him this is another good example by the way of a movie where it's just dense with gags dense with like the scenes where he's when he first gets to the circus and he and goes into like the uh crazy um what would you call it i guess uh, like, hall of mirrors yeah and then but then when he, then he pretends to be a statue and stuff like that <laughs> and when he barges onto the stage of the circus and he disrupts the act and he disrupts the magic act i mean it's really funny just just pandemonium and it's also like a deconstruction of the chaplain character because he is being demanded to do these bits and he can't perform the bits when he has to do them <laughs> they can only come organically out of him being in trouble and trying to avoid that trouble Mm -hmm. and that's why it's funny yeah the circus is always on the bottom when people talk about charlie chaplin feature films and it shouldn't be i think it's because it doesn't have like the emotional wallop of the end of city lights Mm -hmm. and i think in certain ways it's not quite as ambitious as the gold rush and uh also chaplin did not even mention it in his autobiography because he didn't mention a lot of things in his autobiography and i think the reason for that is not only was it a troubled production where i think the sets burned down uh you know, a very difficult production, but also because he was going through his uh, very difficult divorce with his second wife, who was uh, 16 when they were married, mm-hmm. and I think maybe 15 when they... Uh, when they <laughs> I, I mean, look, we're not sugarcoating this. No. I mean, there's some very bad stuff with this man, and there were two memoirs credited to her, but the one that she was really involved in was called Wife of the Life of the Party. Her name is Lita Gray, by the way. I mean, that's an abusive relationship. That's yeah, a, absolutely. a pretty... He, he acted pretty monstrously in that relationship, and I think... In a lot of the movies, one of one of the less adorable sides of him is the sort of kind of Victorian way that he views women, the sort of like putting them up on a pedestal and... and but uh, they should also be a wife. <laughs> yeah, like the sort of purity vibe that he has with women. I mean, like Buster Keaton in his movies, not to, not to constantly be comparing them, but Buster Keaton uh, One movies, of them was an artist, Will, and the other uh, one wasn't. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, whatever. That was supposedly a quote that Chaplin said after one of his kids' friends said, well, I prefer Keaton. He, and it's like, 
fuck, fuck you, Charlie. I like, was an artist. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. But anyway, I mean, it, and also I gave Buster Keaton work. <laughs> he started that sentence with that. But the the women in Keaton's movies, I mean, it's not like they were equal partners, but they would often get like thrown around by the mm. by the wind. You know, they'd be thrown around the big ship and the navigator. Like they got in on the slapstick. You know, mm. which is not. I mean, for the most part, there are exceptions. I'm thinking Mabel of, Norman, pretty much. Well, but also Martha Ray and Monsieur Verdu is mm-hmm. is extremely funny, and I think Paulette Goddard and Modern Times has a lot to do, but mm-hmm. Virginia Cheryl in City Lights is a I little mean, bit of a uh, bit of a statue, basically. Yeah, like a uh, flower pot, essentially, within <laughs> the context of the movie. So let's move on to City Lights, the solid gold classic, the one that's like, ah, yes, the great Charlie Chaplin movie. Uh, great film, yeah, uh, full of great stuff. Uh, what can you say about it? This is the one that I'm least excited to talk about because it's so sort of like self-evidently good. Is it the one that you would go back to the most when you would uh, want a Charlie fix? When I was a kid, I had Modern Times on VHS, and I watched that a million times. So mm. that's the one that I've seen probably the most. But uh, City Lights, I've seen a lot. And City Lights is the encapsulation of all his ideas, like poverty, the rich, uh, what it means to help other people, the, the, how it just society crushes you. Just the metaphor has launched uh, a thousand, a million cinema thesis essays about you know the fact that his friend, when he's drunk. Uh, the rich guy, he's his pal, but when he's sober, forget him. Get him out of his sight. And there's no resolution to that either. And but- the constant, like, wanting, the striving to somehow cross that class barrier and somehow get in there. And, like, why should that rich guy have it and not Charlie? I mean... Yeah, the rich guy doesn't seemingly have any other skills that he's exploiting. He's just rich, and he can do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter. Also, on an unrelated note, I think this is a good one to sort of pause on thinking about how difficult it is to communicate a story in the medium of silent film so the most famous example in any of chaplin's movies of the biggest dilemma that he had to solve was how does the blind flower girl mistake the tramp for a millionaire and the way after apparently a year of thinking about this and trying different things was and shooting the scene over and over (laughs) and over and over again with multiple actors as well playing the blind flower girl the scene starts with charlie he's on the street he just uh walks through a rich man's limo through two open doors closes the door the blind flower girl thinks oh that's a rich man he's got an automobile only rich people have automobiles it's 1931 Uh, so she thinks he's rich and then after she's made the sale the other rich guy comes in gets into the car closes the door the car drives away so she thinks that he'd left yeah so that's a very complicated bit of information to convey in as few moves as possible wait a minute will this is 1931 sound exists why isn't Charlie using it? Because Charlie, uh... uh he was stuck in his ways. <laughs> he he was stuck in his ways, but then also, I mean, uh, I do think, like, in 1927, 1928, the last gasp of silent film, I would have liked that period to have lasted just a bit longer, because I really do think they nailed it in those last couple of years, with movies like Wings or Sunrise, that sort of thing. I mean, a lot of people say that they were just getting to that point of visual mastery of the form and finding ways to communicate things silently. And with the advent of sound, it not only brought a whole bunch of other complicated things to making movies, it also like locked cameras down because you had these big blimps and you had to completely cover the camera. You couldn't really move it. And it kind of had to force people to restart from the beginning of like, all right, how do you tell these stories? And it kind of uh, stalled out when sound really started, unless you were like Hitchcock or someone like that. Yeah, also Chaplin was a pantomimist. Uh, What does it mean to, in a film 
hear hear Chaplin's footsteps when he's doing his funny run? What does it mean to hear his voice? Does the sound of his voice, does it sort of ruin the purity of the character? Also, to record a movie, to film a movie at sound speed of 24 frames per second. As is it as to, funny? Is it as funny as doing it at like 16 frames a second? I mean, maybe not. These are, these are a lot of questions. I mean, a lot of silent comedians would actually know what frame rate, whether it just be hand cranked so that was way back, you would have to run it for particular scenes to sell the gag. When sound came in, nope, none of that. It always has to run at 24 frames per second because otherwise the sound can't be in sync. And also, Chaplin believed that you could communicate way more with silence and looks than you could ever with people talking to themselves. Although he certainly did learn how to talk and he sure did it a lot. One shut up, as some <laughs> critics would say. <laughs> but anyway, in the 1930s, there were two silent films that he made. Uh, the second one in 1936, which did have music and some sound effects, Modern Times. Sometimes the movies because he didn't have scripts and because he was making it up as he went along they do feel like a number of short films stitched together and modern times is the classic example it's kind of a four-part movie i'm gonna have to say charlie a little late for a metropolis parody don't you think isn't a metropolis parody i mean it's kind yeah, pretty of pretty much like the factory all the big levers and the yeah. kind of like visual style but that's iconic stuff i mean yeah. Char- charlie and the gears i mean that's that's classic oh, of stuff. course it is completely iconic i'm saying it as a gag oh fair <laughs> enough but uh so i do like this one a lot okay obviously i like this one i like all of them. Mm. Uh, masterpiece. And I love that it's a sort of kaleidoscopic view of the 1930s, you know? And I think that Paulette Goddard is a very strong companion for him in this movie. She's introduced right away, like stealing bananas off a boat and like throwing it to people mm-hmm. because it's like they will never go starving. And she does participate in some of his schemes, even though Charlie's a star, he's always a star. But in all the women that kind of were in his films, she is very present in this picture. Totally. And all the stuff, all the social commentary, you know it all, listener, still holds up to this day, still very funny, him going absolutely insane because he's forced to up production by the boss who's just watching them through the television. I mean, hey, your break's too long, get back to work. I mean, my favorite one is the feeding machine early on where, where they, they come up with a brilliant scheme it's this uh, device that you can hook up to a worker so they don't have to take a lunch break they can stay on the assembly line and be manually fed literally trapped there they cannot escape and of course the machine goes haywire i think this is like you know a top two or three chaplain scene for when you're at the oscars and you see a montage it'll be like that feeding machine or him going through the gears (laughs) yeah the machine goes haywire beats him to a pulp and then the guy who runs the factory who looks a lot like Henry Ford says it won't work it's not practical as the machine is literally beating Chaplin up (laughs) there's this point where they're fixing it not even caring at all what's happening to them just frustrated that the machine is not working as it is continually slapping him in the face this is another movie that's constantly creating this dichotomy between the insider spaces and the outsider spaces and uh, the only way for Chaplin to sort of get in on the insider spaces is as a waiter or as a floor walker or or you know as a, as a, a low level guy working at a factory uh, but he's constantly surrounded by obscene wealth in this the Great Depression and the only way for him to deal with this wealth is to either go insane like he does uh, get high on cocaine or drunk <laughs> or do I just go to prison there's, yes. a, there's a section of the movie well, where that's he, when he says, gets high on cocaine yeah. and it, his confidence gets him out of there and it's just it's better to be in prison I mean hey we get taken care of yeah here. he wants to go back to prison too he's like I want to go back to prison I don't like being out here I also love the stretch of the movie where he and Paulette Goddard get a little shack in a shanty town make this basically parody of bourgeois domestic life a lot of good stuff in the movie uh, 
have to say Modern Times, you know, critically, I feel like it ends on a bit of a whimper. <laughs> but that's what I'll say. Huh. Because of the nature of it being just kind of sequences strung together. I suppose that's true. But I do like the, the shot of them. Walking off into the sunset, like a lot of Charlie's films. Anyway, sound came for Chaplin eventually. The Great Dictator in 1940. And you know what else came for him? Hitler! And he's going to punch Hitler right in the nose. Or the Hitler mustache. I mean, the Charlie Chaplin mustache. You know this one. You love this one. Charlie plays a a dual role of a Jewish barber who lives in a Jewish ghetto and Adenoid Hinkle, the dictator of the fictional nation of Tamania, based on Adolf Hitler himself. What? Hitler? I know, I know. And I thought only the Three Stooges had the bravery to take Hitler down a peg before America got involved in World War II. I mean, it was uh, pretty brave of Chaplin to make this movie. I think the American censor board uh, at first said that he couldn't make it, and he said, well, I'll sell it all over the world. It's fine. I I need to make this movie. We didn't even discuss that, like, post-United Artists, Chaplin funded all of these movies. Like, he was the main guy. Yeah, I mean, he paid for these movies, and so... One of the things I find compelling about Chaplin is that he was so rich so early, and he created this infrastructure around himself of self-financing, self-distributing, that he basically was allowed to make movies however he wanted. Because no one could say no, he was signing the check. So, A Woman of Paris, he actually shot the film in sequence from beginning to end. First scene shot first, last scene shot last. Didn't matter if, you know, there are scenes in several different locations. They didn't shoot all those scenes at the same time. They went to one set, then they went to another, and then they went back to another set, and again, shot without a screenplay. Sort of improvised as they were going along. Wildly inefficient and expensive way to make a movie, but he could do it. So, The Great Dictator, Incredibly powerful stuff. You know the scenes, the big speech at the end, him being in the Jewish ghetto, being strung up, about to be hanged in one sequence. Where they blow up the barber shop. I mean, I think it's incredibly powerful. And then bringing all the baggage that you, the audience, bring with the little tramp. You've been with this guy for years. You've seen him outsmart however knows whoever knows how many cops, uh, but these cops, he can't outsmart. These cops are going to string him up on the flagpost. Now, this film, in my opinion, too long. Over two okay. hours. What, okay. are we, what is this, a Judd Apatow film? I see your point of view. I respect it. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily disagree, but then I also wouldn't cut anything out of it. I would also say, Chaplin, pick a lane. Is it about the Hitler or is it about the little tramp? I thought oh. it was more of a Prince and the Pauper type situation when that only actually comes up in the last 10 minutes. Oh, I, I like both strands of the movie. I like both strands, but you gotta pick a lane, man. Mm. I like I also like just how the structure of the movie feels almost like a novel. It, like, to, <laughs> like different chapters? To the point where at the 90-minute mark... I mean, again, this is a man who like never learned how to make a movie the normal way. And at the 90 minute mark, he's like, let's introduce a whole other major character, the Mussolini character. I mean, I like how that feels in the movie. Now, how did you feel as a child watching these sound Chaplin films? Oh, I found them. I mean, I like the great dictator because it was full of like comedy stuff. Yeah. Like him upside down him playing with the balloon. Yeah. All that, all that funny stuff. Uh, Was there a dissonance, though, when you would hear Chaplin's British voice? Like, in the same way the Buster Keaton, like, uh, this is my real voice. I can't do Buster Keaton, but you know what I mean. That's close enough to how he sounded. (laughs) I would say that Chaplin's voice takes a little bit of getting used to. Mm -hmm. I think it's an extraordinary voice. He used an amazing instrument that he played in an extraordinary way. In some of the later ones, I mean, you hear that voice for so much, and it's it's a little bit of an abrasive voice. It's a little trilling. It's a little high-pitched. Like, I think the voice poses a challenge. I had a weird 
weird memory, the first time I saw The Great Dictator, I thought I'd built it in my mind that this was a dialogue-free film until the final scene when he spoke. No. And I don't know where I heard that, but that's not what this is. Like, both Chaplin's, the characters, speak a lot during the movie. Well, let's talk about the movie that may actually be my favorite Chaplin film, 1947's Monsieur Verdoux. Seven years after The Great Dictator. So that's a long break. Seven very eventful years. The Great Dictator was his biggest financial success, but it was followed by several years of bad publicity for him. Oh no, I got a girl pregnant. Or did that happen later? No, no, that was in that seven years. He got a girl pregnant. Or and, did he? Well, well, I think blood tests showed that he didn't, but nevertheless, she had a child. Well, uh, I learned in the Richard Attenborough film, it was his nemesis, J. Edgar Hoover. Who, who personally was, framed him. Yeah, puppeteering it all. Anyway, I think if you read anything about that situation, he did treat that woman deplorably. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she did sue for child support. I think there was also a case that the federal government brought for a violation of the Mann Act, which is transportation of someone across state lines for obscene purposes, which was normally a case that was applied to prostitution cases, but was uh, applied very differently in this case. Blood tests were ruled inadmissible in courts at the time, so he did have to pay child support for and the next 21 years. Not like he would have paid to falsify blood <laughs> tests or anything like that. I mean, he? I mean, maybe. It's been a while since I read up on that case. I mean, maybe it, maybe it was his kid. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really matter, and it didn't really and like, he, hurt his bottom line to pay some child support. He, he paid for it, and uh, he treated that woman deplorably. And then he married the 18-year-old daughter of Uh, Eugene O'Neill. And he stayed with her until the end of his life. Nevertheless, marrying an 18-year-old when you're like 55 is going to lead to some bad press, as did his (laughs) communist sympathies. He wasn't like, hey, look, she's 18. I was doing 15 back in the day, and now I'm (laughs) doing 18. This is better, right? And hey, I realize it's my fourth wife, but but this one, trust me. I'll talk to you guys later. I'm getting on the Lolita Express. (laughs) Vroom, vroom. Anyway, uh, he can't say in 1947 that, oh, but I'm actually going to stay with her for the next 30 years. That's not me defending him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Charlie Chaplin and Woody Allen have clearly proven that. They've done nothing wrong. <laughs> so there was a big break, but it was also, as Will said, due to his perceived communist sympathies. He did run with that as well, though. I mean, he hung out with a lot of communists. He hung out with Brecht and Hans Eisler and people like that. He certainly had leftist sympathies. I think he's a little, actually a little harder to put on a spectrum than some people might think. I mean, you listen to that final speech in The Great Dictator, and I, I don't know where you would put that. <laughs> well, as J. Edgar Hoover would say, he's saying that about America. <laughs> right, in the, in the Attenborough <laughs> film. Yeah. But when you actually read a transcript of the speech, it's very powerful powerfully delivered but it's like it's like kind of you know well it's like are we all individuals or should we all unite i mean i don't know <laughs> listen i am a libertarian and that's what i believe we should just govern ourselves anyway i think he believed in a lot of different things but i do think Monsieur Verdoux is one of the great kind of anti-capitalist movies. Well, I'm putting it on. I'm ready for a little bit of little tramp action. And, oh, hey, what's this? A dark comedy about a blue beard, a man who marries women, kills them, and then takes their money. There's something very fundamentally changes in Chaplin's movies around this time. I think he spent a very long time being this tribune, this symbol of the disenfranchised in film. And you can only do that for so long when you're the richest and most famous man in the world. Yeah. Look at me, I'm poor. And then I go back to my mansion. <laughs> and 
I think he always remained very class conscious. The movies are full of class issues, but at a certain point, the perspective changes from a little tramp who wants to wants to enter a society, wants to become rich, and it becomes bourgeois, middle class, or very rich people who are sort of confronted with losing it all. And that's the case with Henri Verdu, bank manager, who is laid off during the Depression and to support his wife and child, proceeds with a new career of marrying and murdering wealthy widows for their money. Now, Chaplin, he figured it out when he did Monsieur Verdu as he is a foppish dandy. That's what he sounds like. And in his old age with the white hair, that's who he's great at playing. I love his performance in this movie. I think he's magnetic. The performance is a challenge, though. You think so? I mean, don't you think so? I mean, he's he's amazing on screen. I mean, again... I love him counting his money. Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> but, I mean, he's such a little prick. And that, oh, he's and, an asshole. And that voice. Oh, my God, but that that's voice. that's what the film... it's kind of grappling with, right? Is that Chaplin knows everyone who's seeing this movie knows him as a tramp. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching that, you're watching it through that filter and like that scene where he creates the poison and he looks into the camera. He's like, how about we try this out? eh?" Mm -hmm. It's like, you are complicit in the things that you are watching right now. So the thing that I love most about this movie, there's so much I love about this movie. I love that halfway through the movie, he is going to like use his he's gonna test poison on a streetwalker and he brings her up to his apartment and he gives her his very negative view of life but she says ah but life is wonderful uh, listen to the birds sing you know that kind of thing very schmaltzy stuff and he says you know what i'm not gonna poison her she's good she's pure then late in the movie he's reunited with her and she's very well to do now and he oh, finds out i love this it's so good he finds out she's married a munitions manufacturer <laughs> yeah. and he's like oh well that's nice he's like i should have gotten a munitions that would have gotten me a lot of money <laughs> yeah and she says yeah it'll be paying big dividends soon because the war's around the Holy corner fuck yeah and then you think they're gonna have some reunion at the end of the movie because this has been the emotional through line of the film nope it climaxes with him in court he's saying hmm isn't it interesting that i kill one person and i'm a villain but the state kills millions and uh, they're a hero then it cuts to her in the audience looking on mournfully no tearful reunion what the movie is saying is everyone's happiness ultimately comes at the expense of someone else's suffering and so this guy he's just doing it on an entrepreneurial level (laughs) and he even says like you know i kill one person oh big brouhaha you kill millions numbers in a book no one talks about it so i mean imagine making this movie in 1947 after the war two years after victorious we won Two years after the A-bomb, when everyone thinks you're a communist and you've just married an 18-year-old. I mean, I, I I cannot imagine releasing this movie into the world. But this film is also very funny. And oh, the yeah. shtick of him, like, trying to kill his wives, very hilarious. I mean, I love the bit when he's on the boat with Martha Ray and he's trying to <laughs> like strangle her. He's like, we're going to catch the fish like this. And he puts the noose around her so, neck. Oh, no. Tied to a rock. Oh, no. It's a yodeler. <laughs> uh, it's a whole convention of yodelers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is very, uh, what do they say? Something like inopportune. He's like, yes, very. Then 1952, I mean, that movie was a huge box office flop. I think it probably recouped around the world, but uh, Chaplin very out of favor at this point. And in 1952, when he's in his early 60s, I think he makes Limelight, which is his second drama. And it's him as him grappling with the fact that he's lost his audience. Limelight is about Chaplin as kind of a drunken, forgotten major comedian who one day comes back to his apartment and finds in one of the rooms a young woman who trying to commit suicide he saves her brings her up to his own room gets her back into health she's a dancer and then she goes to dancing and drags him along to maybe appear on stage again now of course she wants to be his wife but 
uh, Calvero, the comedian he plays. Why didn't he tell me that was his name? (laughs) Uh, Calvero uh, wants, life is for the living. He thinks that she should get someone her own age. Unlike the real Chaplin, who who never hesitated to get with somebody younger than him. Even uh, Chaplin, uh, sorry, Calvero says in the movie, like, I've been married five times. Like, I've had it. I'm good. Yeah. But this feels like it should be the last Chaplin movie. Like, he should have not made any movies after this, because it is the final statement about him as a person and as an entertainer. Uh, An incredibly powerful film. I mean, I said earlier that he was making movies so long that he never had to make movies the normal way and he just created his own style. And I like how this movie almost feels like it's taking place in a dream. It's in this sort of weird stripped down fake version of London. And there's something just so direct about it. Uh, There's something so unfussy and so like unabashedly sentimental about it. it just goes straight to the heart. And I don't think that Chaplin had ever let the camera kind of rests on his face in the way that he does in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where it seems like another film is taking place where the dancer that he's with has met a musician that she had lost and they're having a reconnection and it just cuts to him on a bench, like watching it all happen, realizing what's happening. And he just sighs, sits there on the bench in that beautiful shot where all the lights get turned off in the studio that he's in until only his face is illuminated. Also climaxes with the historic only pairing of Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Just Amazing just, scene. Just incredible. I, I just get goosebumps seeing the two of them on stage together. And watch that movie again. And then the scene where, spoiler alert, Chaplin dies at the end. You see Buster Keaton acting his heart out in the background yeah. looking at chaplain do these kind of like final words as he about to go and pass on it's just incredibly powerful stuff i think i still think this movie should be better known it should be more widely seen isn't it like i I guess it's getting up there but for a long time it was one of the one of the lesser loved ones i think just because it's a drama and also it's long but you say it's a drama it's so funny though like yeah whether it just be that big sequence of keaton and chaplin or how the film starts where he's doing his like drunken act like going to the (laughs) door opening it up being like oh miss do you need help and slamming into the door like there's comedic stuff there that he is a performer and he kind of mixes that drama while also using his gifts on screen 1952 is the year it came out it's also the same year that chaplin left for a worldwide publicity tour and found that his re-entry visa was revoked. J. Edgar Hoover's like, gotcha, Chaplin! At least according to the Attenborough <laughs> film, that's how it played out. Which is where I got all my information about Chaplin. I mean, Chaplin perhaps could have returned to the country if he'd, I don't know, signed a loyalty oath or done some questionnaire or something. He never sought American citizenship, which I think also made him a bit of an enemy in the press. Uh, but he decided to, with his wife and his growing brood, resettle in Europe, settle in a big estate in Switzerland, where he just, uh, you know, chilled for the rest of his life, basically, making two more movies. I watched a not very good documentary called The Real Charlie Chaplin, but the one thing that really struck me with that documentary is that you hear the voices of the children at the end of the film, and they say, we never had one one-on-one conversation with our dad. That's interesting. Like, he was never there for us. One mm. of them says, near the end of his life, finally, when they thought it was never going to happen, they did finally speak to him, and he basically said, like, I live my life in doubt. Like, and it still haunts me to this day. Wow. But other than that, they wouldn't communicate with him. And they say that when you see him in the home movies, and he's all fun and stuff like that, that's only because the camera was on him. But he was not like that when the cameras were off of him. Well, he didn't do his bits. Well, that's sad. I mean, yeah, what can you say? Hey, he was older, and he felt probably his life was passing away. Even though that, as a star, he had an incredible run. 
of his career. Like, starting in 1914 till, uh, let's give it The Great Dictator, 1940. Yeah, I think it's hard to underestimate. I mean, going from the truly abject poverty that he grew up in to being the most famous man in the world, what that does to a man, what that does to a brain. Well, uh, you can see it in his penultimate film and last starring role, A King in New York. Well, this is the one where, I mean, I can defend anything in any of the other ones, but this is the one where I start to break down a bit. What about A Countess from Hong Kong? I mean, that one I, I really have trouble defending. I, they Both these movies have their fans. I, 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 here's what I'll say. I'm glad they exist. Just as somebody who... Hey, look, Chaplin's on screen! <laughs> just as somebody who's interested in Chaplin, interested in everything about how his brain worked, it's interesting to see, like him working through stuff in the 50s and the 60s it's interesting to see the the conclusion of the story but i mean i think a king in new york is a very bad movie it's just not funny that's the main issue right yeah so in this one he plays king shadow the king of a fictional country and he's been ousted from the throne by an angry mob apparently because he was against nuclear weapons which is but he liked nuclear energy and wanted to bring it but they made weapons out of it so he comes to america and and over two hours, you get a scattershot assault on America and her ills. Oh, widescreen cinema. Let's get out of here. There's a really lame bit about rock and roll music. Ugh, old man Chaplin. Some get ki- out of here. Some kind of lame stuff about TV commercials. The movie's a bit better when it's getting to the House on American Activities Committee. Yeah, it's all right. How do you like his little son, Michael Chaplin, as the little communist kid? Don't who, like it. Get out of here. Like it? Oh, okay. no, yeah. I kind of like that stuff. I don't know. There's a lot of it, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, it becomes the main kind of focal point and the character of the king is like oh i just accidentally fell into this thing i'm not going to take any kind of position one of the things yeah 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 so politically the movie isn't as interesting as monsieur verdu or something like that because essentially what it is is like uh listen i'm not a communist but i think people should have the freedom to be communists which is just a bit Come of on, a man it's a, bit, it's a bit lame you're already kicked out of the country why don't you just <laughs> full commie up because he's not a communist what can you say he's a, he's an old rich man he also got he's a liberal a, what do you want yeah he is a liberal he's an old rich liberal he at did this accept point. um awards from like the soviet uh, union i mean that's cool yeah. i like that yeah but he is like let's Calm all the music down. Let's go back to full screen. Can't it just be like it was when I was younger? <laughs> I think the most cringe-inducing part of this movie is when he starts reciting Shakespeare. Ugh. Do you remember that bit when he's yeah, just like television. doing to be or not to be? I mean, that's just him showing off. That's just <laughs> him being like, hey, look at me do Shakespeare. I mean, pure self-indulgence. Also, the movie looks really bad. Yeah, it looks cheap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the poster also promises a film that doesn't deliver, which is Chaplin being like, whoa! when he's falling over like, can't wait for these Lewis-like uh, funny adventures he's gonna have nope none of that anyway anyway, this is not a defense of the movie I'll just say that I am glad to have like 60, 68 year old Charlie Chaplin in 1956 like making a movie about the Red Scare and stuff like that I, I find it interesting that it exists and I'll continue to watch it once every decade hoping to like it and finally we have accounts from Hong Kong made 10 years later 1967 we did a whole Patreon episode on that movie so yeah uh, just in brief what i'll say about that one is it's not good <laughs> yeah as interesting as it is to watch someone who never had to follow the rules of filmmaking was able to make a movie entirely in his own style 
there comes a point when it doesn't work anymore. You know, when Charlie's on set trying to tell Marlon Brando exactly what he has to do. I mean, the movie might have, like, might have possibly worked a bit better if he'd cast Cary Grant or someone. Mm, but, I agree. But Marlon Brando is just such a heavy presence in the film. But Will, I found this Contrarian Letterbox review that says that it's good. <laughs> I, I wish I had that opinion. I would love, I would love to love this Maybe movie. Maybe one day your brain will be so rotted, you'll watch it that yearly view where you can go, no, 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 this is good. I get it now. I mean, I I'm chaplain-pilled enough where I watch Accountants from Hong Kong, and it's like a compendium of all his worst tendencies. And, you know, it's it's the guy I like. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the stuff I like, just in severely distorted and form. color. Bad color. The only color Chaplin movie. Yeah. And again, it brings some of his thematic preoccupations. The Sophia Loren character is a prostitute. The Brando character is a diplomat who may be president one day. It's, it's you know, it's King Shadow and the Little Tramp coming together on screen. Like, it, it's two <laughs> yeah. sides of his personality. It's like a Marvel team. Yeah, yeah. Both of them come in and have the fireworks that go off. So if you've seen every other movie, there are elements of interest, but I cannot, even I cannot make a contrarian case for that movie. I'm sorry. And, you know, he came back to North America. They gave him an honorary Oscar in 1972. He got up on stage, wept. People were like, yay! At that point, a little bit too old to talk coherently, but mm. but he did He did it. some shtick, didn't he, on one of the awards ceremonies? He, did, he did some stuff with his hat. Yeah, like he knocked his hat off. Yeah. He, still got it. I would just say I enjoyed taking this journey with you, and I think Charlie Chaplin, one of the great 20th century figures, and I and I do mean one of the great 20th century figures, like a guy who, through his career, you follow not only the evolution of an artist, you follow the evolution of the 20th century itself. You're with him during both world wars, the Depression, the Roaring Twenties, all the way to the Atomic Age. You, you follow that progress in his films, and that's an interesting journey to take. Well, that's it for Chaplin, and we're running very long this episode, so no letters, but Patreon this week will... Why don't we finally do it? Let's do an episode on Billy West. <laughs> Let's do Billy West. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the Chaplin Imitator. All right, I'll find some Billy West movies. We'll watch them. There's and, a uh, lot of Billy West films. Like, you look like he ran not for very long, but he made a lot of shorts in that period. He went hard. Yeah, they really overworked him. Are there people who are like, you know, the monkeys are better than the Beatles? <laughs> that there's like Billy West defenders? I've never encountered. In all my travels, <laughs> I've never encountered anyone who said Billy West was better than Chaplin. But what I will say, you watch Billy West movies, he's good. Mm. He's got the shtick down. Oh, he, okay. he did his homework. I've never seen a Billy West film, so I'm looking forward to watching them. So next week on the podcast, what are we going to do? We're doing the no problems politically filmmaker that we all love, David Mamet. Hell yeah. And we're doing the films he directed, not yes, wrote. None of the ones that he wrote. Not The Edge. <laughs> oh man, The Edge is pretty great though. Yeah. <laughs> no, so we'll probably do like House of Games. It'll give us a reason to watch Spartan. I've never seen Spartan. Excited to watch it. And you're excited to visit our man Tim Allen once more in Red Belt? Hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to tell you folks about the new Gold Ninja Video Blu-ray release. And I'm not doing this because I was involved in it. I'm doing it because I strongly believe in the product. And, <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I don't just own the company. I'm also a member. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie is called The Iron Dragon Strikes Back. It stars Bruce Lai, real name Ho Chung Dao, the greatest Bruce Lee impersonator of them all. But he was so much more than a Bruce Lee impersonator. And we've talked about Bruce Lai a lot on this podcast, probably since the beginning and this opportunity came to me when I was looking at like a list of an archive and I was like wait 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 the Iron Dragon Strikes Back 
That's a film that's directed by uh, Kuei Chi Hung, the guy who did The Boxer's Omen, and it stars Bruce Lai. One of the greatest Shaw Brothers directors and a true auteur, somebody who, much like Charlie Chaplin himself, was interested in the grime, interested in the streets, interested in poverty and desperation. So I got this print. And I put it out, uh, I did a scan, and it was one of the most stressful things I've ever had to do. (laughs) And now it's out on Blu-ray. We're holding it in our hands right now. So this took a long time to complete. I mean, I know that you had originally planned to put it out, get it mailed like three months ago, but it's worth it because amazing things kept happening. So obviously we did our incredible commentary. I think it's a very good commentary too. We did our incredible video features. We did two features. We did one about Bruce Lai where we just pick our favorite movies. That's a good one because you see all the clips. Like I layer in those clips as what we talk about shows up on screen. More importantly, you got just out of the blue at the 11th hour deleted scenes from the movie from some obscure Japanese DVD. I had to go back in the commentary and delete my mention of me being like, I don't know where these deleted scenes are because a listener of the podcast and the person who actually synced the audio in the film that he went through and synced the Mandarin audio and the English audio to the print he contacted a friend who had the Japanese DVD and he sent it to me and he also went through and he found all the time codes so he found the shots that were different in this version and I edited them all together into like a 23 minute sequence and the Japanese DVD was unsubtitled thanks to a another loyal listener Emil Dirks he subtitled all the Mandarin dialogue, so it will be subtitled on this Blu-ray for the first time anywhere. I mean, this movie, The Iron Dragon Strikes Back, is a really good movie. Oh, that's the thing, right? Like, it's not like, oh, you gotta be like a Bruce Lai fan. It's just a great movie, like a 70s kind of like downer martial arts film on the cusp of Jackie Chan coming out, but also like neo-realist and just kind of like nihilistic it, as it, well. It's a real streets of Hong Kong movie, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they're in they're in the grimiest locations having these really vicious fight scenes and the plot is a simple plan like a bunch of friends find gold one of them takes it and it blows up in their face and it's also an excellent action movie yeah i also just love the way it looks on the blu-ray like (laughs) you 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 got a very beat up well loved red print red theatrical print and i mean you did color correction on it so the colors look good uh but i don't know if you're like me if you're at all like me you like the texture of a of a well-loved film print so Mm -hmm. just pretend you're at the grind house invite some people to come over and piss on your floor (laughs) and to proposition you for sex and to stab you for your money and then just have a good time watching this movie and i think it may be one of the most again going back to the features feature packs it not only has the deleted scene which are not listed on the back of this because i did get it right at the last minute i'm so glad it got delayed and i could add this stuff because like otherwise i couldn't have and uh we also do an amazing like almost 20 minute video where we go through a bunch of dvds that star bruce lee and decide if it does feature bruce lee or not again i know this sounds like a commercial and i guess it kind of is yes but it is a commercial go to goldenjavideo.com and buy this blu-ray but i do highly recommend this i mean come on i mean you wrote the uh booklet essay as well that comes inside of it yeah i'm just very proud to have been involved in this i'm just happy that i was able to put together a disc that just kind of like honors bruce lie who is so omnipresent in all of these bargain bin martial arts films but you don't really get anyone who's like oh i'm a fan of that guy or you know this project is honoring his work which is definitely like the top tier when it comes to these kind of movies well you got andrew barr the great andrew barr to illustrate the cover to create a new cover for it and what's so great about it is he draws bruce lie he doesn't draw bruce lee yes nobody has ever drawn bruce lie <laughs> they've always drawn bruce lee and right on here you get bruce lie's face <laughs> 